Good evening and welcome to this Tuesday edition of Navara Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. As I'm sure you're aware by now, this show broadcasts every weeknight at 6 p.m. It's now called Navara Live. I'm overjoyed to be joined by Harriet Prothero Sultani on tonight's show. Harriet, how are you? And more importantly, how are you feeling about the move away from Tisky Sour? I'm good. I'm loving it. You guys are growing and developing. It's so good to see you shine. <laughs> That's a really nice, uh, nice way of putting it, and we're so glad you can join us here this evening. Rishi Sunak has been having a tough old time. He was forced to sack Nadim Zahawi from his position as Tory party chair. And that's after the former chancellor was revealed to have paid HMRC an eye-watering penalty for tax avoidance. And his deputy prime minister is facing an apparently endless barrage of claims involving bullying and harassment. Facing that much critical scrutiny, what's a Prime Minister to do? Well, a cabinet reshuffle is guaranteed to keep mainstream political journalism distracted, which is exactly what Sunak has now done, as well as creating four new government departments. So what are these new departments? Announcing the changes, Number 10 posted this on social media. Number 10, making government deliver for the British people. And as you can see, the various departments are listed. Energy, security, net zero, science, innovation and technology, business and trade, and a slimmed down culture, media and sport. Not exactly awe-inspiring stuff. Still, Sunak tried to make the most of it, tweeting this. The government needs to reflect the priorities of the British people and be designed to live for them. These changes will focus teams on the issues that will build a better future for our children and grandchildren. Our children and grandchildren, that's a bold claim for a guy who almost certainly has no more than 18 months left in office. But back to those departments. Now, the most significant change is the first one. Britain used to have an energy department. It was created in the wake of a different energy crisis, the oil crisis of 1973 but the Tories shut it down when they privatised energy in the early 90s. The Grant Shapps, who used to head up the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, will now be in charge of energy security and also responsible for the UK's transition to a net zero carbon economy. But is he the right person for the job? Well, his record on decarbonisation is pretty patchy. In 2016, he was the only MP to back a report blaming decarbonisation for instability in the UK's energy supply. Supporting the report, he wrote this. While nobody questions the noble intentions behind these interventions, it is clear that a perfect coincidence of numerous policies designed to reduce Britain's carbon dioxide emissions has had the unintended effect of hollowing out the reliability of the electricity generating sector. Unfortunately for Shapps, that report later turned out to be complete nonsense and the level of instability in energy production was grossly exaggerated. In response, Greenpeace said this, It is laughable that anyone would take this report seriously. Only one MP supported it, and that's Grant Shapps. The 1% figure for the electricity margin is just scaremongering by climate skeptics and those with vested interests in keeping dirty, polluting old coal power stations online. While transport secretary, Shapps also came out against onshore wind turbines just last year giving this interview to Sky's Sophie Rich. It's really important that we, we spread the uh, variety of ways in which we create energy uh, in this country and indeed in the world, because we've seen what happens when um, somebody like Putin gets hold of that energy supply. So next week in the, in the energy strategy, 
uh, we'll be looking for a greater mix of different ways to produce our energy, uh, which do not rely on imported hydrocarbons, there's gas and oil um, side of things, particularly from uh, Russia. So you might expect to see uh, more small nuclear reactors, nuclear power, you might expect to see more offshore wind power. Those, I think, would be the things to look for, more solar as well. Uh, interesting that you're focusing there on the nuclear and the offshore wind. Um, of course, the issue with nuclear is that even according to the government's own impact assessment, it takes 13 to 17 years for electricity to be generated by a new nuclear plant. Do you think planning law should be relaxed to allow more onshore wind farms as well? Well, I, just on nuclear, um, modular reactors are likely to be one of the important ways forward and um, you know we have already produced modular re reactors they, they already exist in in, in subs uh, submarines um, so I think then there may be other technologies which can be moved along um, faster uh, I, I I don't favor a vast increase in onshore uh, wind farms um, for pretty obvious reasons they sit on the the the, the, the hills there and uh, can uh, create something of a of an eyesore uh, for communities as well as actual um, problems of, of noise as well. Um, so uh, I think for reasons of environmental protection, uh, it, the, way, the way to go with this is largely, not entirely, but largely off-sea. According to Energy UK, the trade association for the energy industry, onshore wind should play a key role in our energy security strategy. They wrote this. Had the UK rolled out renewable energy projects earlier, it could have saved UK consumers £65 each in their energy bills. It would have increased our resilience to fluctuations in the global gas market, protected us from gas prices that are currently six times more expensive than onshore wind. Supporting the deployment of onshore wind also aligns with the UK government's levelling up agenda and green recovery policies. Investing in onshore wind could boost the UK economy by over £45 billion, driving a new wave of investment in skills and creating over 57,000 jobs. According to a website they work for you, Shapps has generally voted against measures to prevent climate change, and he was also against a fracking ban. Let's take a really quick look at other big changes. Michelle Donnellan was briefly the Culture Secretary, and before that she was Secretary of State for Education, a job she held for a gargantuan 36 hours. She now moves to the new Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. Kemi Badenoch made a pitch to be Prime Minister last summer, but ultimately became International Trade Secretary. She now gets an upgrade to be Secretary of State for Business and Trade. Lucy Fraser was a Junior Housing Minister. She now takes on the slimmed-down Department for Culture, Media and Sport. There's also a new chair for the crumbling Conservative Party. Greg Hans has been appointed both Tory party chair and minister without portfolio. That means he's now been in every government since the Tories took power in 2010. Interestingly, he was an ardent Remainer in the 2016 European referendum. Now, that fact might explain Sunak's surprising pick for deputy party chair. Lee Anderson has been MP for Ashfield since 2019. He's a member of the Eurosceptic Common Sense Group. But just last month, he criticised British nurses, saying this. I heard some nonsense a few weeks back that nurses were actually stealing food off patients' plates. I don't believe it. Anybody earning 30 odd grand a year, which most nurses are, are using food banks, then they've got something wrong with their own finances. The Tories have given us the highest level of taxation apparently ever, and inflation running in the double digits. But okay, Lee, it's nurses who have something wrong with their finances. Some Tory MPs are pretty unhappy, it should be said, about Anderson's appointment too. 
Sky's Sam Coates posted this message written by an anonymous Tory MP on social media. Lee Anderson is everything that is wrong with the conservative brand presently. He seems to rejoice in deliberately provoking and making aggressively simplistic statements that fail to recognize the complexities of the issues facing the country. If this is the new Tory party, many will be forgiven for deserting it. Harriet, what are your thoughts? Lee Anderson, 30p Lee. Is he now the face of the Conservative Party? And what does that mean for them if they want to win the next general election? I want more Lees because he's pulling back the little peel on Tory ideology and those little conversations that we never get to hear that we're obviously having. I mean, if someone like Lee and the government want to wind up the nurses, then crack on. because It's only going to push them in further and further into industrial action. And I don't think they realise how angry nurses and NHS staff are right now. NHS workers will probably never forget this. Even friends from school who I haven't spoken to in years recently were commenting on a status saying like how the NHS is obviously being driven into the ground, how this is all a like money-making scheme. And these are people who are normally politically expressive. And I realise, wow, this is really, really cutting through with people. They can really see this for exactly what it is. But I guess the Tories don't want the NHS to survive. They want to make it dysfunctional so it gets privatised. And they don't really care about losing these voters because they don't want working class voters like nurses. And I think you have to think of this strategically because this is all a game of politics, right? Why would an MP of the party of government make jokes about a group of people that they're in industrial dispute with? Well, the culture war. The Tories obviously want a culture war. They obviously want to extend the strikes in the hope that they can use the media to turn the public against the striking workers so they don't have to give in to their demands. But they're idiots to think that the public are going to turn against the nurses, like the one group of people that probably still have trust in society, the most trusted people, the people that care for you in your dying days and in your sickness. But just on his point about costings, so £30,000, you know, if you're paying rent like I am, which is around £900 for a two-bed, your gas and electricity bills are around £200 a month, you're paying extortionate petrol rates, Imagine being a single parent living off that income with that level of cost in. Add in childcare on top as well, your pension contributions, potential student debt. 30K really won't go that far. It's a bit rich as well for someone like Lee Anderson, someone who bought a lavish six-bed house months before making these comments, and also who gained a £15,000 donation from a posh private members club called the Carlton Club to help his campaign in. I mean, I'm not going to take any advice from this guy. I'm from Bournemouth, a, a, a Tory voting uh, constituency historically. You're from Merthyr Tidville, you know, it's of course it's Labour voting, but it's it's got its fair share of working class conservatives. And I'm not talking about, you know, people that voted conservative the first time in, in 2019. These are these are very different kinds of communities to the ones that often populate politics at Westminster in the southeast of England. The things he says about you know, pulling your bootstraps up and polishing your shoes and putting on a tie and speaking politely. And do, do you not think there's a part of that which resonates with 30, 35% of the public, which let's be frank, is a hell of a lot better than the Tories are doing in opinion polls right now? I guess it is part of that kind of divide and rule tactic to pick working people against each other, the kind of working hard and the work shy kind of vibes. Uh, and that has been a narrative that's been lingering around for a long time in this country. I can see how that could potentially cut through with people who feel like, well, not me, but those other people, those other mythical people out there. Um, but also like that amount of money in today's 
society. I think a lot of people would empathize with the fact that actually 30K is not going to go that far with rising cost of living. So who knows? Next story. BBC chairman Richard Sharp has faced the grilling from the Commons Culture Committee over his involvement in Boris Johnson's financial affairs. Appointed by Johnson in 2021, it's since emerged that Sharp's path to broadcaster's top job might have taken some unconventional turns. That's because it's been reported that Sharp may have helped the then Prime Minister to secure a loan of up to £800,000 in late 2020. It seems that despite his £165,000 a year salary, Johnson was facing an early cost-of-living crisis of his own. Before we play the first clip, I want to introduce one more character into the mix. This is Sam Blythe, a Canadian businessman. He's a distant cousin of Johnson's and an old friend of Sharp's. Amazing how everyone in this story seems to be a millionaire who already knows everybody else. Funny how that works. In the committee, Sharp gave the background to the scandal. The starting point uh, in, in the way you described it is my long-standing relationship and friendship with Mr. Blythe. Um, he's somebody I met after he'd left university um, and after I'd left university some 40 years ago. Um, so Mr. Blythe is a personal friend of mine who I've known for some time. Um, as a result of press reports that he had read in September, um, he raised with me at that time his concern that his cousin, the Prime Minister, um, was reported in these press reports to have some difficulties. Um, Mr. Blythe raised with me the fact that he was interested in, in feeling uh, about whether he, should he do something to help. Uh, he raised that with me at a private dinner uh, at his house. Um, I said to him at that time, you may be a family member, um, but you need to be very careful. Things need to be done by the book. There are rules in this country, and these rules exist for a good reason. You're a foreigner, and therefore, before you contemplate doing anything or providing any assistance to the Prime Minister, you should involve the Cabinet Office. And that was the, he raised that issue with me, and that was the end of it at that point in time. But was that the end of it? Johnson's loan was apparently finalised in the February of 2021. The Times report this. Before the loan was finalised, Johnson, Sharp and Blythe had a private dinner at Chequers, the Prime Minister's grace and favour home in the Chiltern Hills in Buckinghamshire, where, according to a source, they ate chopped suey and drank wine. The three insist that Johnson's finances were not discussed. While all that was going on, Sharp put in his application to be the BBC chairman. The Times reports this. Sharp submitted his application in October 2020 after Charles Moore, a former editor of the Daily Telegraph and Johnson's initial choice of the role, withdrew from the contest. Sharp had privately discussed the idea with Johnson, whom he had previously served as a City Hall economics advisor. The pair are long-standing friends, having seen one another socially in London and gone on skiing holidays in the past. According to a source, Johnson told Sharp, let's make the BBC great. By November, Robert Peston, the ITV political editor, reports that ministers were telling would-be applicants, don't waste your time applying. The PM has made up his mind. It will be Richard Sharp. Just days after the alleged checkers' dinner, Sharp was announced as having won the position. But Sharp denies he ever gave the Prime Minister any financial advice, a claim that DCMS committee chair Damien Green found hard to believe. 
In the clip we're about to show you, another character emerges. That's Simon Case. He's the Cabinet Secretary, the UK's most senior civil servant. You've said this morning that you, you've never provided financial yes. advice. Yes. And, and yet there's a Cabinet Office note from Simon Case to Boris Johnson mm -hmm. saying, given the imminent announcement of Richard Sharp as a new BBC chair, mm -hmm. it is important that you no longer ask his advice about mm -hmm. your personal financial matters. That seems to contradict well, what you've just said. Well, I haven't seen that memo. Well, um, it was in the Sunday Times two no, weeks no, ago. I haven't seen the memo itself. I, I've seen the report of the memo, uh, obviously. And in fact, I discussed that with the Cabinet Office. What Mr. Case undertook to me, and I was very grateful for that at the meeting, he, will, he said, I will ensure you have no further part in this. And uh, I had no further part in this. And so that memo, um, and I've, in fact, I discussed this um, with a cabinet official, because I only learned about this over the weekend, when, when as you did, when, when, when I, a journalist put that to me. I learned from the cabinet officer, it did refer to the meeting that I'd had with Mr. Johnson, which was um, alerting him to the fact that I was going to go and see Mr. Case. And uh, at, at that meeting, I did not provide Mr. Johnson advice. And um, I think it was an ambiguous construction that obviously is open to misinterpretation. I've never given the Prime Minister advice. He's never sought it. I know nothing about his personal financial affairs. And so I take it that that phrasing, and I had that confirmed to me unofficially by the Cabinet Office uh, before the article was written, was that referred to the fact that their efforts were to prevent me from receiving any calls from the Prime Minister to protect my position and to protect his, for that matter. So let me get this straight. You can know the Prime Minister needs a huge loan, but also know absolutely nothing about his private financial affairs. Okay. As part of Sharp's appointment as chairman, he was interviewed in 2021 by the Culture Committee. So shouldn't he then have mentioned his connection to Blythe and Johnson? That's a lot of questioning Labour's Kevin Brennan was keen to press. If you were sitting on this committee, wouldn't you be just a little bit disgruntled, so I put it that way, about the fact that when you appeared before the committee, you chose not to tell us about this? Well, look, I think one of the reasons why I'm welcoming this opportunity is because there's been a lot of um, assertions about things that have taken place. I'm not making any which, assertions which, about that. Which have um, mischaracterized, uh, as far as I'm concerned, my involvement. My involvement was to ensure due process was followed. Well, I was not party to any subsequent events that took place. I gave no financial advice to the Prime Minister. I gave no financial advice okay. to Mr. Blood. Well, look, we're going over old ground, but I'm not asking you that, am I? I'm asking you. If you, to put yourself in our position for a moment, in our, in our role in this matter, and if you were sat in the House of Commons, whilst ministers prayed in aid, this committee's um, report, when it interviewed you in the pre-appointment hearing, to say, nothing to see here. And when they're appearing all over the media, saying, oh, the DCMS Select Committee said it's, it was fine, so there's not a problem. And you're a member of this committee, and you find out that in fact you did not disclose to this committee the fact that you were involved in making introductions which would result in a very large um, soft loan facility being made available to the very person responsible for appointing you to the job we were which was under consideration. 
How on earth did you think that was not a relevant matter to disclose to this committee? Well, as I've described... Do you regret it? As I've just... I'll, I'll come back to that particular... As I've described to you, I acted in good faith to ensure that press, due process was followed, including an open declaration to the Cabinet Secretary about the issue occurring at the same time I was applying to be the BBC chair. I mean, you with could respect, say, you, with you respect, might well just say I refer you to the answer I gave previously in true House of Commons style, but, but well, well, with, do you with, not with, see why we with, might be with, unhappy with, about that? With respect to the regret, obviously, I regret the situation. I particularly regret uh, the situation for the That's BBC. That's a non-regret regret, though, isn't it? No, it's not. The situation. It's not at all. We all regret everything. I non-regret the regret, and I regret the non-regret. Anyway, let's try and introduce another millionaire to the mix. You guessed it. It's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who also happens to be an old friend of Richard Sharp's. They work together at Goldman Sachs. Where else? And Sharp was an advisor to Sunak when he was Chancellor. Asked about Sharp's appearance at the Culture Committee, Sunak had this to say. The BBC chair has just told a select committee this morning that he told Boris Johnson he was applying to be BBC chair and he told him he was in touch with Sam Blythe about a loan. In what world is that acceptable? Well, this is obviously about an appointment that was made by a previous prime minister before I took this job. So it's hard for me to comment on the details of it. What I do know is that his appointment process was conducted rigorously and transparently. It was approved by a panel of experts and indeed a cross-party select committee in Parliament. But it is right that people have confidence in the process. And that's why the independent Commissioner of Public Appointments is re-looking at the process to make sure that everything was done correctly. Do you think people can have any confidence in the process? It just looks like establishment cronyism, doesn't it? Well, as I said, at the time, the process was considered to be one that was conducted fairly rigorously, transparently, in line with all the guidance set out uh, that, that exists for these things. A cross-party group of MPs in Parliament thought the process was good and recommended that British Art was appointed. An expert panel of independent people also said the same thing. But it's right that now the independent Commissioner on Public Appointments is really looking at the process so people can have that confidence. So the Prime Minister there appealing to the thoroughness of the select committee process. But how thorough can it be if the candidate, Sharp, didn't disclose important information to it? Harriet, how confident are you of the, uh, the various processes by which we're judging as to whether or not Richard Sharp is telling the whole truth and where precisely Boris Johnson got this money from? I mean, they're playing us for mugs. It's wild how by having a posh accent and a lot of money, you can wriggle your way through these situations. And like in, in that uh, select committee, Richard Sharp said that he let Sam Blythe know that he'd put in an application to a B-chain. He could have no part in it going forward. What other parts could he have had? He introduced them. Like, what else could he have done? He's not going to be like, oh, look, boys, I can't sign the check because that would be too far. Like, what? It's an £800,000 loan. And then he said he had no knowledge of the PM's finances. Then why did you think a meeting was necessary? This is absolute nonsense. And the government had previously said that Sharp was appointed on merit. And I think it's a bit of a stretch to ask the public to perceive the BBC in particular as the highest quality of news and journalism when the chairman can't even tell the truth. I think it has a knock-on effect for the BBC that is really quite damaging. And if I was a BBC journalist, I think I'd be pretty annoyed at this because it will bring people's public reputation or public understanding of the BBC into disrepute, and they will see this for what it is, which is cronyism. Regardless of your opinion on the BBC, these rich men are using it as their playground, and it's pretty foul. 
And I was kind of reflecting on how someone gets into this position and gets away with this kind of stuff. And I was thinking about the social mobility. And I feel like, Aaron, I was sold a lie around social mobility. I was told, you know, go to university, your life will be changed forever, you'll be part of the middle class. I used to go into schools in Merthyr and encourage kids to go to university, and I'd say it would change your life. Now, some of this is true, obviously, but there's one thing that I and other kids from Merthyr and probably yourself will never be, is no matter how hard we work, is that we will never be part of this gang of rich elites who use entire countries and countries' institutions as their playgrounds you know, this class within a class that will always back itself up in their eyes will always be the working class to be lied to and deceived. But it's so blatantly obvious, like anyone watching that select committee would just think it's absurd. But I guess the worrying thing is they have so much unchecked power and influence that it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what the public thinks. If you're going to fund the prime minister and a best mate with the prime minister, like think of all of the scandals under the Boris Johnson government and many of these ministers have had. There's nothing the public can say or really do because they have so much power. They can get away with it. Yeah, I feel like the thing that's on um, on Sharp's side is just how obscure all the details are. So, for instance, he says that he wasn't particularly aware of Boris Johnson's finances, yet at other times he's said that he was the guarantor for lines of credit being made open to Boris Johnson. Blythe says he doesn't know Boris Johnson, yet he's a distant cousin. The whole thing is so complex, arcane and strange that I feel like you need a, a PhD in you know, research studies just to understand what the hell is going on. Uh, and I think that's been done on purpose, Harry. I think you're right. It's, it's obscured um, because it's preferably obscured, that we don't know uh, the full kind of the full story, I guess, which is something we want to do here on Horror Media. Of course, we're not a select committee and you read in the Times or the FT or the Guardian, actually often competing accounts. And it's difficult to discern who's given what, who was the guarantor and who knew what. But like you say, what it does boil down to is when he's asked those questions in what is apparently the house, the home of British democracy, he's wearing his navy grenadine tie He's cool and collected. And I have to say, I was watching that thinking, you know what? He seems on top of it. He's, he's probably going to be okay because that's how the establishment behaves. And that's often how they get away with it. Next story. Met police officer David Carrick has been jailed for life. The 48-year-old must serve a minimum term of 32 years minus the time he spent in custody before he could even be considered for release. Carrick admitted to 85 serious offences against women over 17 years, running from 2003 to 2020. He was, for the entirety of that time, a serving police officer. Met Police Commissioner Mark Rowley has apologised. We in policing have failed. Uh, he should not have been a police officer. There were many signs that we should have joined together. He should have been rooted out during his career as a police officer. Um, it's upsetting to be stood here talking about this. Um, and I apologise again to the victims. And indeed, I apologise to the women of London, many of whom I'm sure will be um, troubled and um, their trust in policing will be shaken by, shaken by these events. So the Met Police Commissioner there, apologetic, but as we're about to see, there's a bit more to it than that. In her summing up, Mrs Justice Chima Grubb told Carrick, who was in the dock, you behaved as if you were untouchable. You were bold and at times relentless, trusting that no victim would overcome her shame and fear to report you. For nearly two decades, you were proved right. 
Garrick's sense of impunity has a direct relationship with his position as a police officer. That isn't speculation or opinion, it's something he himself repeatedly said. Here are some details disclosed by the Sunday Times. Carrick, 48, repeatedly used his position to tell victims they would not be believed if they reported him, saying that he was the law. He sent one woman a picture of his met firearm with a warning, remember, I am the boss. It goes on to say, his first victim in 2003 was threatened with a black imitation handgun to her head before he squeezed her throat, saying that he was the last thing she would ever see. The woman, who was 20, said she had encountered evil when Carrick trapped her in his home and repeatedly raped her. They'd met at a London bar earlier that night when he told her he was a police officer and, quote, the safest person she could be with. Another woman was repeatedly locked in a cupboard by Carrick and whipped by him. In her impact statement, she said she'd been too frightened to go to the police. She said, quote, Carrick had drilled it into me that he was the police, he was the law, and he owned me. I was convinced the police would not believe me. Remarkably, Carrick's sexual assaults included other police officers. Again, this is from the Sunday Times. Among the complaints was a domestic violence incident involving a colleague. His victim had become a Met Constable after meeting him in the late 2000s. Their neighbours called Hertfordshire Police after Carrick brandished a knife at her and slashed her work shirts. No further action was taken. The force said that Carrick's Met supervisors had been informed. He continued to work for the Met for another decade. The Met has said it has no record of the incident. The Sunday Times also reports that a few years earlier, Carrick raped another colleague when she visited his flat. She failed to report at the time because she feared that she would not be believed and felt shame. Now to repeat, this is a serving police officer who doesn't think she'll be believed when she's been the victim of a crime. What does that say about how the system deals with these issues? Carrick's crimes are set to form part of an independent inquiry looking at the murder of Sarah Everard. She was raped and strangled by then-serving Met Police Officer Wayne Cousins in 2021. Police are also calling for other women who think they may have been victims of Carrick to come forward. Harriet, how is it possible that someone like Carrick can get away with this kind of behaviour for so long? This is incredibly grim, something I'd rather not spend my evening talking about. But yeah, we we are here. 85 serious offences, 12 between 2003 and 2020 when he was an officer. Being in the force obviously emboldened him. He said this himself on multiple occasions that with his power and force that he... Um, the victims would not be believed, and he managed to get a get-out-of-jail-free card, literally, until now. Um, and the Met have apologised after it emerged that Carrick was, you know, brought to the attention of the police over nine incidents. What is going on? I mean, you know, we can only speculate, but it's really obvious that the hierarchical and misogynistic nature of these forces mean that, you know, this attitude of everyone being beneath them, where the public are continually dehumanised, is kind of part and parcel of the routine. And I'm sure, you know, many people have had experiences, not to make light of this, but to make a comparison of being in situations with the police where you can see their humanity fade. I've been in situations where I've been maybe on demonstrations where I've come up against police officers. Some of them are really close friends of mine. And I've looked at them and I thought, oh, my God, like the process of being in the force kind of dehumanized them from me and being 
a close friend of mine. And they make me wonder the how, how quickly you can switch off your humanity for the sake of that role and that institution. And I guess, you know, that is part and parcel of what that institution is. And then women complainants that come in. And as we've just outlined, women already in the force making these complaints feel like they're not going to be believed. Maybe it's part of this like pack mentality that everyone turns in on themselves. If someone outside makes a complaint, that's what I thought previously. But if it's an officer inside making a complaint as well, yeah, it's just abhorrent. Even if we take, you know, a more liberal view of it, that it's like a few bad apples, which I don't think is the case. But for the sake of logic, they're ineffective at disciplining their own officers. Even on this liberal conception, why haven't they managed to get a handle on their officers since Sarah Everard and BLM? And they can't because it's such a deep-rooted hierarchical institution that trying to um, trying to tinker around the edges of it is extremely ineffective. The thing you just said about you know his colleagues being sexually assaulted is not to minimise what's what's happening elsewhere. Of course, these are abhorrent crimes wherever they happen to. But the fact that you have a police officer who's a victim of a violent crime not reporting the crime because they don't think anything will happen about it. I mean, I, I can't imagine a more damning indictment of the police force that their point is clearly to solve crime. And police officers themselves at the receiving end of crime aren't reporting the crime because they don't think anything will happen. They don't think justice will be served. And I, I suppose if you put that to somebody who's, you know, pro-police, pro-cop, I think, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm like, like Michael on this subject, you know, I'm not an abolitionist, but I think we could have a hell of a lot fewer people in uh, prisons in this country. I think we could massively reduce the number of um, offences, for instance, possession of drugs and so on. Um, I, I would put to somebody, however, that, that even didn't hold that kind of uh, position, who says they're the thin blue line that, that, that keep us from anarchy. Well, how do you explain this? How do you explain this? Because it can't just be one person. It can't just be the bad apple. If the victims themselves are police officers, and I say victims, it's more than one, right? It's two that we know of. And as I previously said, the police are actually saying to women now, if you've had these experiences with this man, please come forward. So the question is, are there other David Carricks? Well, the evidence right now suggests probably. And is this the entirety of his disgusting deeds? Again, probably not. Harriet, where do you sit on this debate of uh, abolitionism or liberal reform? It's something a dividing line uh, here in Navarra Media. I know Michael gets the backs up of uh, a few of his colleagues and some of our audience too. I'd probably say I'm not an abolitionist. I think that, yeah, the whole system, the whole justice system needs fundamental reform. In, you know, in Wales, actually, we have one of the highest rates of incarceration in the whole of Europe. So there's obviously something going awry from start to finish in the justice system, and policing is one element of that. So I think in that discussion, looking at how justice functions in this country is pretty integral, and that is something that I would support, yeah. Final story. Energy giant BP has announced record profits of $27.7 billion for 2022. That's around £23 billion. It's more than double the previous year's figure and is actually the highest profit the company has recorded in its 114-year history. Meanwhile, we're facing a year-long recession in the UK. Workers in the public sector are seeing massive real-terms pay cuts and support for energy bills is about to end. The arguments for a windfall tax on these profits seems pretty straightforward or at least you'd think. But it's at that point that the right-wing press say, oh, but these companies already pay 75% tax. But remember, 
Those windfall taxes apply only for oil and gas in the North Sea, which isn't really relevant here. BP itself says that it'll pay around $15 billion worldwide in tax for 2022. A lot for sure, but it's around 25% of the company's gross earnings, which was approximately $60 billion in 2022. In other words, they're paying a tax rate of 25%. So the idea they can't afford to pay more is clearly absurd. In the North Sea, which BP says accounts for less than 10% of global profits, it will pay $2.2 billion. So it's a tiny amount of their production. Altogether, they're expecting to pay no more than $3 billion tax in the UK. $3 billion of $15 billion worldwide. Now remember, BP is listed in Britain. Doesn't quite make sense, does it? But it gets worse because the company is going back on its commitments to transition to renewables. Alongside announcing record profits, Bernard Looney, BP's CEO, announced the company expected carbon emissions from its oil and gas production to fall by between 20 and 30% by 2030 when compared with 2019. But its previous target had been a fall of 35 to 40% in emissions. And this backtracking, despite extraordinary profits, is a conscious choice. According to the UK think tank Commonwealth, BP spent over 14 times as much on shareholder payouts as low carbon capital expenditure. As you can see from this graphic, shareholder payments are up and other capex is up. That's capital expenditure on new oil and gas infrastructure. Meanwhile, low carbon capex, despite record profits, is actually now lower than in 2021. But it's not just BP who are enjoying a bonanza. Last week, Shell, another energy giant domiciled in the UK, announced profits of $40 billion. Again, that was the highest profit recorded in the company's 115-year history. Elsewhere, US energy firm Chevron announced profits of $35.5 billion in late January, another record. All three paled beside Exxon, however, which last week announced $55 billion of profit, the highest for energy the highest, the highest for any Western energy company ever. Huge numbers. 35, 40, 55 billion dollars. Harriet, should we be taxing these oil companies more? These are enormous numbers. It's not turnover, it's profit, and for a single year. Well, you know, not only are they raking it in, but as you've outlined, they're also reversing the climate targets, producing increase in production over seven years. And as you've said, BP say they're already paying enough tax in the UK, and that accounts for less than 10% of its global profits. But I don't think most people care about relative profits. Let's have some of the share of the overall profits if they're a UK company. And the CEO said recently, for every £4 the company made in the North Sea, it paid £3 in taxes. Well, I would frame it another way. Every £4 of the £4 that they make should go to the people of Scotland. It should be a nationalised industry. The people and communities of Scotland should have a say over where their resources go, maybe not a CEO. And I think this terrain needs to be fought not only on the basis of climate change, but creating companies that work for people, not for profit, and also democracy. The Scottish government should be able to decide where its profits go. In Wales, the Welsh government, in the cooperation agreement with Plaid, have committed to creating a publicly owned renewable energy developer, which I think will be really interesting to see how that develops. In October, Julie James, the Welsh minister, said, we want to harvest our wind and use it to produce power that directly benefits people in Wales. You can see two vastly different approaches here between the governments. 
But I also think a really important point in this discussion is to zoom out a little bit and think about what this process is. And this is a process of wealth extraction. So communities are having their wealth and resources extracted from them, all to be given to international capitalists. There's a strong sense of this narrative lingering, particularly in post-industrial communities, where resources have been extracted for years to make the rich richer. I remember my granddad used to tell me about a book by a Welsh author called Alexander Cordell, and it was called Rape of the Fair Country. Probably wouldn't use that title now, but here and all there. Let's move on. And this book looks at the extraction of wealth from South Wales mining communities and the struggle of workers against them. And it kind of like links into the Chartist movement and the Newport Rising. And the reason why I say this is because I think that extraction of community resources and wealth is key here. And I think it needs to be linked to workers' struggle, particularly around key industries, fighting for better rights, but also fighting to have a say over how that company is run, who owns that company, whose benefits the or whose profits are shared around, how they're shared around. So I think this is kind of an interconnected discussion. I know I've probably zoomed out a little bit too much from how we tax BP, but actually, if you think about its work and operations here in the UK, it is just extracting resources from Scotland without paying any dividends to the people of Scotland. So it is it is a key issue, you know? I love the Welsh angle, um, Harriet, because I think not many people are aware of this. You know, at the turn of the 20th century, Britain obviously had the, the, the manufacturing side in Manchester and elsewhere. It had the financial services side in London, uh, but it also had the energy side. You know, it was, I think it was the world's largest energy producer, really, at the start of the, of the 20th century with regards to Welsh coal. So it was like Saudi Arabia, New York and China all rolled into one <laughs> on one tiny little island. And you're right, you go to South Wales today... Um, and it's one of the most economically isolated, disadvantaged parts of the country. And at the same time, you have a company listed on the London Stock Exchange, like BP, making in one year all this money. Like I say, Shell and BP for 2022 made around $60 billion. For context, that is more than the GDP of a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has 85 million people. It's one of the most resource-wealthy countries on earth. In one year... Two companies' profits were bigger than the size of its entire economy. And that says something. And here's another fact. That BP is recording its largest ever profits in 2022 is extraordinary. After all, this was a company founded as Anglo-Persian oil in the early 20th century and which benefited immensely from colonialism. When a democratically elected Iranian politician, Mohammad Mossadegh, tried to nationalize Iran's oil in the 1950s, he was overthrown by the US and us. Yet profits for BT are higher now than they were then. It certainly makes you think. And that's our show uh, for this evening. Thanks, Harriet, for joining me. No problem. I'm glad you got Persia in the end. Represent. <laughs> yeah, we've got both sides, Wales and Iran. I thought I'd make you uh, happy, Harriet. And thanks to every one of you watching uh, this evening. I know I'm no Michael Walker. We'll get there. Practice makes perfect. Make sure to come back to our channel tomorrow night from 6 p.m., We'll be live with Michael Walker, but for now, I'm Aaron Bastani. You've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarro Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.